brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. Continue this Lenten journey now with Monsignor Ronald Knox, one of the great translators of the 20th century and the late 19th century, and one of the great teachers of the faith more broadly. And today we will continue looking at the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And he will tell us now about being unmoored from servitude. And what that looks like for the married state. Perhaps an odd subject for the Sermon on the Mount, but as you'll see, it all makes sense. And he, being the fine teacher that he was, is worth listening to here. And it hath been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, apart from the question of fornication, maketh her to commit adultery, and he shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Our Lord, as we have seen, came to fulfill the law, not by adding to it fresh precepts, or precepts still more rigorous, but by putting a new law in our hearts positive instead of negative, an active principle of charity. In this article, you may point to the above text and say that here at least we have come across an exception to the rule. For under the old Mosaic law, our elder brothers were allowed, for a grave cause, to divorce their wives, and if they would, to remarry. For us Christians, it is not so. The church here has taken her master's words literally, and though she allows legal separation, recognizes no possibility of dissolving the bond of matrimony. Is not our liberty the poorer than in this instance for the Sermon on the Mount? I have not space to discuss this subject at length, but I would emphasize two things. In the first place, the church as an organized institution must necessarily have a flat rule about the nature of the marriage tie. She must either say that it can be dissolved or that it cannot be dissolved. She cannot trim her sails and parlay and make exceptions. Since it was necessary for her to have a rule, how could she adopt any other rule than that which she had heard from her master's own lips? But more than that, this was not the only occasion on which our Lord spoke to his disciples about divorce. On another occasion, when he was confronted with the fact that the Mosaic law allowed it, he replied, It was owing to the hardness of your hearts that Moses gave you this commandment. But from the beginning it was not so. For this causes a man shall leave his father and mother. He is quoting from a precept older than Moses here, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. He tells us then that the permission of divorce to the ancient, to our ancient elders, was only a special dispensation from the natural law under which we were created. To forbid divorce altogether, as the Christian Church does, is not to add a new burden, hitherto unknown, to the conscience of mankind. It is to withdraw a privilege, and he who withdraws a privilege does not impose a fresh obligation. But now are we to suppose that in these three verses our Lord was simply laying down a principle of canon law, that in these three verses he departed from the principle which he observed all through the rest of the chapter. The principle, I mean, that for the Christian soul, fear of the law ought to be replaced by the love of God. Surely not. Surely his words have a message still for us practicing Christians, who loyally observe the rules of the church about marriage and divorce. There is something he would say to us if we only read between the lines and apply the spirit of his teaching to our present subject, which is going to make this age-long business of marriage and marriage duties easier, not harder, to us, the children of the new covenant. What then does our Lord say about marriage to our own day? Our own day with its habit of speaking about marriage as if it were a kind of servitude, with its cheap jokes about matrimonial unhappiness, with its despairing efforts to find out a way in which a man and a woman can live peaceably in the same house. 
Surely, he tells us as before, that the only way in which you can make an obligation rest lightly on you is to turn an act of obedience into a labor of love. There is only one way to solve the problem of marriage as a vocation to which Almighty God calls us and asks us to undertake out of love for Him. We Catholics have a touching habit of making the profession of a nun into a sort of parody of a wedding service. The preacher is expected to address the novice if she were a bride just waiting for the nuptial blessing. One of these days, I would like to reverse that process and preach a wedding sermon in which I should address the bride and bridegroom as two souls who are about to take their solemn vows in some enclosed order of religious. A little enclosed order of two, with an object of its own and a spirit of its own, the oldest of all the religious orders, because it was founded by Adam and Eve. Tell me, when you meet an enclosed nun, do you expect to find her grumbling all the time about the loss of liberty which she experiences, about the strictness of her rule, the unreasonableness of her superiors, the uncongenial ways of her sisters? Surely, if you did find such a religious, you would say that she was a very bad religious indeed. And why? Because although she was conforming externally to all the rules of her order, she had no love for her order, no sympathy for its spirit, no generosity in the discharge of her duties. And yet, is not that very much the position of the married woman who finds her husband in affliction, her wifely duties a nuisance, her marriage vows a contract of servitude, who makes little secret of the fact when she is talking to her intimate friends, and yet who prides herself on her loyalty to the Catholic profession and not seeking grounds for a divorce? It is ourselves who make servitude of marriage. Christ calls us to it, not as to his servitude, but as the loving service undertaken for him. What are the dispositions that make for a happy marriage? Physical health and beauty in man and woman? No, health may fail and beauty may be marred. Common interests and tastes? No, tastes and interests may change as the years go on. A violent passion of love, the feeling that neither could live without the other, that each has found a soul's mate? Even that, though it be a gracious and fortunate thing, is not enough. Love is blind, they say, and it is a dangerous thing when the blind leads the blind to the altar. No, the disposition that makes for happy marriage is a conviction in man and woman that God has called them to do something for him, to build up a Christian home, and, if he sees fit, a Christian family, by a common act of self-oblation, not for to the other party but to himself. That a Christian community is being founded with the primary intention of all Christian communities, the sanctification of its members. For every marriage, God has his own purpose, just as he had for the betrothal of Our Lady and St. Joseph. It is before all else the fulfillment of that purpose that the bride and bridegroom devote themselves. And if, as too often happens, one partner fails to understand this duty and plays the divine vocation false, that does not release the other partner from a duty that is owed to God. The wife or husband who really loves Jesus Christ will find, in the circumstances of an unhappy marriage, only fresh opportunities for proving and for strengthening that love. God knows it is hard sometimes. God knows there are tragedies of fidelity in unhappy marriages, which can rival the most severe mortification of the most strict religious, and are valued, I think, no less in eternity. But it takes two to wreck a home. Under the Old Testament, Almighty God allowed divorce, but the Old Testament was itself only a temporary covenant. He allowed himself at last, wearied with the long history of their infidelities, to divorce his own chosen people. But the new covenant which Christ made with his church is irrevocable, and under that covenant, the vow of marriage is irrevocable too. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Has he never found reason of complaint in his church? lukewarmness, divisions, scandals in high places. Yet his covenant stands firm, and the Christian who was called upon to remain faithful to the marriage bond in spite of difficulties, in spite of estrangement, is only called upon, after all, to mirror the eternal fidelity of Christ. And that was a hard teaching, to be sure, from Monsignor Ronald Knox, reminding us of one of the perhaps most unpopular teachings in the modern world of the Church today, and that is the indissolubility, the permanency 
of holy matrimony. Those words sting a little bit? They should. They should prick all of our consciences. After all, any of us married probably can hear in his words, in our minds and in our hearts, our own failings in that. But perhaps early in Lent, it's good to add another mortification then to our Lenten practice, to bring our own situations as much as we can into accordance with what Father Knox said there. Perhaps only as much as we can ourselves. I'm curious what you have to say about that, so let me know in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps a lot too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.